and you're listening to CITR F102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. Today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Steve Albini. And to prepare you for Steve Albini, here are a couple bands that Steve Albini has produced. The first one is... Pansy Division and their song Hockey Hair. It's such a problem. My name is Steve Albini. Steve, welcome to Austin, Texas. Right off the bat, Steve Albini, I want to ask you about the importance of this band right here, The Mentally Ill. The Mentally Ill were a unique and perverse punk band in Chicago. Well, actually in Deerfield, which is a suburb north of Chicago. Um, They were uh, a group of friends who played music and made one fantastic single and then later some other recordings. Um, They played no live concerts during their initial incarnation and then many years later they reformed and played a a concert or two. Amazing guitar sound, isn't it? Brutal. One of the ugliest sounds ever on record, yeah. This this record is a, a pivotal record in the sound of punk rock in my opinion and you recorded them recently some weird stuff they wanted recorded uh i recorded them on their reunion phase i recorded them uh i want to say five maybe eight years ago i I don't actually remember how long ago it was but 
But they wanted some interesting stuff recorded, didn't they? Like Ty Seagull had like a toilet explode. It almost hit your eye too. Uh, well, Ty d- had a, there was an instrumental bridge in one of his songs, and he decided at some point that he wanted to make his record label pay for a toilet so that he could smash a toilet in that section. And uh, the record label were more than happy to go on Craigslist and find him a toilet. And then we smashed a toilet during the instrumental interlude of the song. And he almost hit your eye, according to David, that I saw. I, I don't remember. I'm sure, yeah. If there's video evidence of it, then I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to look foolish by saying it didn't happen. Now, I have a gift for you. Now, I'm not sure if you already have this gift, but I'm giving it to you. Kurt Cobain's journals. Are you aware of his journals, Steve? Uh, I think I was aware that this happened, but I'm not. I've never looked through them. I don't know them. It's your own copy for you. Oh, thank you. Now, if you could please turn to page 227, which is number one. This is Kurt Cobain's journals. And it has a fax from Steve Albini. I agree. What do you remember about that? Uh, I don't. I don't recall the circumstances. I'm going to guess that this was after. Well, I don't. I I couldn't tell you whether this was before or after we started work on the record. I think it was before you started work on the record. I believe you. So there was the fax. Now on number two, page two two eight. There is some notes for recording that are provided to Steve Albini on number two. And it's actually on page 228. So I guess we turn over the page and here are some notes for recording. Uh, I agree. And I was curious, don't use a hi-hat. Uh, I don't see. Make sure there is a carpeted cab. Don't. These are Kurt's notes for recording. And I was just curious... If you followed the notes at all when you dealt with Kurt Cobain. Uh, this looks like a... Mr. Producer. Yeah. Um, I, this looks like, just based on some of the microphones that have been recommended, these are microphones that I often used on guitar. Um, what do you it think? Looks like, it looks like he's transcribing... What you said? Yeah. Is this what you do? I was curious, Steve Albini, because these are Kurt Cobain's journals, a gift to you. And I was curious, what do you think of Kurt's sketches? Is it what happened, actually, when you produced his record? Uh, Some of this, yeah. This actually looks like advice to someone who's recording in a non-professional environment, like how how to make a recording environment a little bit more friendly and how to provide some isolation and... Uh, miking technique, recommended microphones, miking technique. Yeah. Um, well, this one thing looks odd where it says cut a hole in the bottom of the toms. I don't think I would have suggested that. Um, but the rest of this looks like all like stuff that I might have suggested. Like the specific microphones he listed. The Bayer 160 or Bayer 130, RCA BK5, um, Sheps and Sankin and AKG. Mike's recommended his overheads, not Neumann and not Sennheiser. Yeah, that sounds like me. So it's pretty much your setup then. Well, I mean, it's if you called me and said, could you give me some recommendations for some things to try for recording, I, I would probably give you similar recommendations today. Also, Kurt loved, and if we turn to number three, Big Black. He loved Big Black. Specifically, he liked Big Black Oh, this is an, uh, a big black song called Crack Up, which only appeared on a uh, compilation album, a touch-and-go compilation called God's Favorite Dog. 
Um, that's a a deep cut, as they would say, as some people would say. I wouldn't normally say that, but uh, I feel like it's kind of appropriate here. And it's in Kurt's journals for you. Oh, well, thank you. Steve Albini. Was it fun recording Nirvana? Did you really light farts on fire? Uh, so there was some fart lighting, but there was also, um, the band got into this thing where they would spill alcohol on things and set it on fire. And one of the things that they spilled alcohol on was Dave Grohl. So there are some Polaroids of Dave Grohl with his ass on fire and things like that. You also loved pranking people. Gene Simmons. Did you phone Gene Simmons? Gene Simmons actually phoned the studio looking for to speak to the band. Um, they had, he'd been given that number by management or the record label or something. And he called the studio and Kurt didn't want to talk to him. And he handed me the phone and said, you know, you can deal with him. And I so I pretended to be Kurt for a while talking to Gene Simmons. And there, they had a thing set up there where you could record the telephone calls. And so we, we recorded the conversation with Gene Simmons where he admitted basically that he wasn't familiar with Nirvana's music or any of the bands that, that Kurt was sort of friends with. He wasn't familiar with their music. So Gene thought he was talking to... He thought he was talking to Kurt Cobain, but he was talking to me. Yeah, because I one time interviewed Gene Simmons and he said, oh, I talked to Kurt Cobain. Yeah, sorry to break the spell there, Gene. Did you ever meet Scott Litt? I don't think so. Because he did some Nirvana stuff after you. What was your dealing with Scott Litt? I was just curious. I, I, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever met him. And I, I certainly don't have any animosity toward him. I just don't think, I don't think I've ever met him. Steve Obini, what is the importance of Rocktober fanzine? <laughs> Rocktober is a terrific... Uh, fanzine done by true enthusiasts in the Chicago area. Um, they do a fantastic job of dredging up uh, niche and uh, perverse musical uh, acts of all description. You know, bands with animals in them, bands that uh, that wear costumes, bands that performed with puppets, bands that had. Uh, inanimate members, things like that. Steve Obini, Big Black had a drum machine. Yes, that's true. Did you play with any rap bands that had drum machines? Not that I recall. Did you ever record any drum machines? Oh, yeah. A lot of, quite a Of the rap variety. I didn't record any rap artists that I... I mean, there, a lot of... A lot of bands incorporate elements of hip-hop and have rapping parts of their songs, but like strict, strictly rap artists, I don't think I've recorded any. Steve Albini, Ruthless Records. Easy e had Ruthless Records, but you had Ruthless too. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know which of us had it first. The Ruthless Records that I was involved in was a sort of a cooperative label that was started by the band The Effigies and Naked Ray Gun. And then uh, in the first round of releases, Big Black was also rolled into the initial round of spate of releases on the Ruthless label. The idea was that if all of us in independently put out records, we would have more trouble getting paid from the distributors, getting um, records noticed by the fanzines and such. Whereas if we sort of banded together and created uh a, a label that could at least pretend to have greater ambition than a larger roster, then we'd be more likely to get paid and get noticed and that sort of thing. But Ruthless versus Ruthless, did you ever get their mail? Uh, 
only once that I recall. There was a videotape toward toward the very end of the existence of Ruthless Records in Chicago. Um, a videotape was delivered to our post office box that I believe was intended for the other Ruthless Records, but it was it was a, a videotape that was being returned from uh, some television station or something. It and I returned it so that they got it back. So, but only only happened once that I know of. When you were at Abbey Road, was there anything there that you wanted to take home? <laughs> they have a truly magnificent collection of microphones, and yeah, I, I coveted that entire mic closet deeply. Did you get a chance to meet George Martin at all? I have met George Martin. I can do an impression of George Martin if you'd like. Oh, please, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be George Martin, right? What I'd like you to do is say, excuse me, and get to, to get my attention, and then I'll do my impression of George Martin. Okay, of Sir George Martin. This as long as it doesn't involve a punch to the head. You have nothing to fear. So I'm, I'm going to look this way, and then you get my attention. Excuse me, George Martin. Hello, I'm George Martin. That's it. That's my impression of George Martin. Baboom. And did he actually do that? Yeah. Did he have any idea that you were recording Guy? Uh, I had actually met him once previously. Uh, and so I reminded him that I had met him once previously. And then he remembered the circumstances of having met me previously. Um, I, I don't think he knew that I made records. I don't think he had any reason to suspect that I was there in a professional capacity. I have another gift for you, and I'm not sure exactly, Steve, if you like getting gifts in your past, or if you have it, that Pansy Division, Manada. <laughs> what do you remember about Manada, and do you collect all the records you have made? Uh, I don't, actually, and I don't have a copy of this record. The Pansy Division, a fantastic punk band, um, and uh, I remember this, I remember the, the, specifically the song Hockey Hair was uh, about... Uh, having a fling or having or developing a relationship with someone that you're embarrassed to go out with because he has hockey hair and i thought it was yeah truly truly terrific band tired of ugly fat that was the title of a column that i wrote for the music fanzine matter in the 1980s millions of dead cops yeah you weren't too much a fan of that band no they were awful Worse than Asshat? I'm a, I'm, I admire the name Asshat tremendously. I especially admire their logo. I don't know if you're familiar with the Asshat logo, but it's a magnificent drawing of a bowler hat that also looks like an ass with a feather plume coming out of it that also looks like a fart plume. Absolutely magnificent logo. I'm unfamiliar with Asshat's music. But you don't like MDC too much. Only because they're bad. But they're still in the game. They're still in the game. You've got to give them that, right? Okay. Why didn't you like MDC? I'm just curious. They were stupid and bad. Like, who was good? What's the opposite of stupid and bad? I don't... I don't do you want me to name a band that I like? Yeah. What's the opposite of MDC? Uh, I've never really thought about it in those terms, but... Uh, do you want me to name a contemporary band of MDC who were great? Is that a, a band like the X, 
who we just discussed actually would be a really great counterexample. I'm a prick. Okay. Lemmings. TV waltz. Just. I believe you have just named some songs by my, the first band I was ever in, a band called Just Stucky. Yes. Do you remember those songs at all? Uh, what was that era like? I, until you refreshed my memory, no, I, I wouldn't have rem- been able to recall those song titles. Uh, it, uh, we were teenagers. We were learning how to play instruments and learning how to be in a band. Because at that era, Free Range Zine said you were duct taped to a chair? Uh, something about that sounds familiar, but I don't remember. For a review. I don't. Oh, I see. I know what happened. You, what you're describing is a, um, a stunt for forced exposure fanzine where I was duct taped to a chair and blindfolded. Uh, and then uh, Byron Coley, who is the one of the editors of the fanzine, um, played records for me, and I was asked to review them while blindfolded and taped to a chair. I think that's what you're talking about. Snoopy, Archie the Cockroach. Uh, Snoopy from the the Peanuts comic. Um, there was a, a musical play about peanuts that my high school put on and I played the role of Snoopy in that high school production. Um, Archie the Cockroach is a character in a Don Marquis book called Archie and Mahitabel about uh, an alley cat and a, a cockroach. And the cockroach communicates by hurling himself at the keys of a typewriter and leaving short cryptic messages on the desk of the writer Don Marquis. Did you keep a pet cockroach? No, although there was a a cockroach in a, a, a large cockroach, a large dead cockroach in a Ziploc bag who was named Archie in an apartment that I lived in in Chicago. Yeah. Who wears, Steve Albini, guitar straps like you? Who else wears a guitar strap around the, their waist? Uh, Santiago Durango, the other guitar player in Big Black, adopted the proper guitar strap technique. Um, the proper? Yeah. Uh, I, and I seem to recall the Australian band The Mark of Cain. I think their bass player adopted the proper method of guitar strap wearing. Steve Albini, what is the correct way to wear a guitar? Uh, Okay, so if this is my guitar, I would attach one end of the guitar strap here to this end of the guitar, then wrap it around my waist here, and then again around my waist, and then attach it to the upper bout of the guitar, and then the guitar would stay in that position no matter where I turned, the guitar would stay in that position. Did you at one time work for a bootlegger? I worked for a company in Chicago that did bootleg T-shirts, not record, not bootleg records, but bootleg T-shirts. Uh, yeah, and I I made bootleg T-shirts for that company. I printed them. I did artwork for him, and he would, the owner of the company would bring me a shirt, and then I would copy it either photographically or 
mechanically. What was popular? At the time, uh, the Stray Cats were very popular. Uh, David Bowie, the Let's Dance album was at the top of the charts. And there were a lot of David Bowie Let's Dance t-shirts. Um, that, those are the two big ones that I recall. What about Jim's 24-hour Polish sausage? Jim's is a, a Southside institution in Chicago. It's an all-night um, sandwich and hot dog stand, and they sell magnificent Polish sausage. What about Jorito sodas? Uh, I believe it's pronounced Haritos, and they're... Um, Thank you. Yeah, they're very colorful, uh, sort of nondescript, fruitish flavored soda pop sold in uh, Mexican groceries in Chicago. And they're, they're brightly colored and very, so they add a little spark of gaiety to the kitchen. Steve Obini, what about fluffy coffee? Fluffy coffee is a, a kind of a latte drink that we make at the studio where I work. It's a, a as our resident coffee expert, Taylor Hales, calls it, it's a very dry latte, meaning it's a lot of milk and not a lot of coffee. And uh, the milk is mixed with maple syrup before it's foamed, so you end up with some delicious maple syrup foam, sort of like a marshmallow, on the top of your coffee drink. And the coffee is mixed with cinnamon so that you have slightly, there's a whiff of exotica about the coffee flavor, that's all. You have a special way to cook potatoes? You've mentioned that from the stage when you were playing with shellac, cooking uh, potatoes. I think somebody asked something about how to cook a potato, and there's a simple way to cook potatoes that, may, that where they're exceptionally delicious, and that's to boil the potatoes in their skins in heavily salted water. And the, the heavy salt um, draws some of the moisture out of the potato so the potato is fluffier. Uh, as well as seasoning the potato. Interesting. And you also played a roller rink in shellac with baseball uniforms? It wasn't a roller rink, um, but during the strike season, uh, uh, baseball strike season, I want to say it was 94, um, we put together a, a show in Chicago that, that, that was Six Finger Satellite, Tar, MX-80 sound and shellac and all of the bands had uh, custom baseball uniforms made and we had the U.S. and Canadian national anthems sung in between bands and it was a whole baseball themed event. Yeah, It was amazing that you worked with the Silver Apples. Yeah, they were a truly inspirational band for me. I I was a big admirer and, and it was enormously gratifying to be asked to work on a Silver Apples record. What about the Cribs? They love drinking too. So does the Cribs. Uh, you know, on a sort of a normal consumption of sodas basis, yeah, sure. What was it like working with the Cribs? They've done a couple albums with you. Yeah, they're uh, we get along very well. They're, you know, they're brothers, and so they have in a very close rapport within the band. They can communicate in an almost sort of uh, telepathic manner. They don't really need to articulate too many things. They tend to understand what each each other want without having to hash things out with arguments or verbalize things too much. Generally speaking, very good-natured people. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Are you doing the 
Wayne and Garth quote from Wayne's World? And of course, I'm not worthy meeting Metal Urbane. Ah, okay. Uh, Metal Urbane, again, a truly inspirational early punk band. From- you love them, don't you? I think you said, I'm not worthy. Uh, I, I would have, yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I've met Eric Debris uh, from Metal Urbane, but I've, um, I, I've never worked with the, the band proper. But their early records were, you know, real game changers. They really, they, they sort of bridged the gap between the sort of pure noise, electronic element of experimental music and the sort of driving, aggressive punk uh, rock music of the time and and it was a, a at the time it was a unique synthesis jordan from noise floor in vancouver victoria he gave you an hardware pen do you remember that uh, i i do remember it's a uh, the sort of novelty pen where the bikini comes off as you turn it upside down uh I, unfortunately there is not a bikini it's just my hair yeah what, you, what where was that? That was in France or something. Yeah, I I do occasional teaching seminars at a recording studio in France called La Fabrique. Um, the program is called Mix with the Masters, and people by will like by subscription will come to these seminars to learn rec- recording techniques from various recording professionals. And I I've done five or six of these seminars. Jordan brought a Nardwar pen. Yeah. Here we are with me at South by Southwest. Everything you're saying is true. Which you kind of said you wouldn't go to before. Yeah. It, I, the reason I'm here was that Kim Deal was going to be here and she needed wanted someone to act as a as her interviewer in a for in a setting where she would be sort of telling her story to the people about, you know, where she was in life and what's up with her new record and that sort of thing. And she asked me to do it, and I, I, I'm i constitutionally unable to decline something that Kim Deal asks me to do. I'm just, I'm, I'm putty in her hands. Anything else you'd like to add to the people out there, Steve Albini? No, I guess I'm, I'm slightly envious of the social and political environment in Canada relative to the states at the moment. And... Uh, like I said, I I admire your public institutions, and um, I wish you the best. Well, thank you very much, Steve Albini. Why should people care about Steve Albini? I'm doing my best. I, I don't I don't have any particular sales pitch for myself. I'll, I'm just trying to earn an honest living and do what I can to uphold my end of the culture. Well, thank you very much, Steve Albini. Keep on rocking in the free world and do do loot do. I agree. That works.
Oh, yeah, I played on that. Yeah, I know, exactly. You were one of the first people, in fact, the first person ever that I could say, who are you? Yes. Well, I'm Rod Argent. And beside you, Rod, you have? I have Colin Blundstone by my, on my right here. Yeah, I'm Colin Blundstone. I'm the lead singer for The Zombies, and we're very glad to be in beautiful Vancouver this evening. So, Colin, tell me about Rod playing on Who Are You? Rod's played on many, many really big albums, you know, and that's that's one of the greatest that he's played on. But he's played on loads of things. He's one of the best keyboard players in the world, so people want him on their project. And Rod, tell Colin about you playing on Who Are You? Well, the thing was that I just played on a Roger Daltrey album called One of the Boys. And after that, Roger said, um, had spoke to Pete, and then they, they asked me to play on Who Are You? Um, and... The idea was that I was going to play on the whole album, but what actually happened was that I'd already contracted after a month to play uh, on an album for Andrew Lloyd Webber, which became a number one album in in the UK with John Heisman, Gary Moore. Uh, It was called Variations. And the thing is that um, the Who album took a long time because what actually happened was that they, they were going through a lot of political changes at the time and they had meetings day after day after day after day. And when we actually recorded, it didn't take very long. I mean, the Who Are You track was all done in, in an afternoon. Um, uh, but in the end, because of everything that was going on, I only played on three tracks. I played on Who Are You, a track called Love Is Coming Down, which I'm not credited on, but that is me playing piano on that track. How do you recognise his playing, Colin? How do you recognise Rod? Lots of notes very fast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And also with solos, very long. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, they're only long because he has to go off and have a wee in the middle of the... Uh... <laughs> Don't tell him all my trade secrets. <laughs> Who are you? Who am I? Who are you? You played on it. It's amazing. Who are you? Who am I? Well, I, you played on Who Are You? I did, yes. I, I played, I'm Rod Argent, and I played on Who Are You? Yes. And beside you, you have Colin Blunstone. Who didn't play on Who Are You? I didn't, no. I think I wrote one of the songs on the Roger Daltrey album that you just mentioned. You did. One A Single one. Man's Dilemma. I wrote one of the songs on the Roger Daltrey album that Rod played on before he played on Who Are You? So you see, it's a small world. So complicated with the zombies. But let's bring it right back. What can you tell us about Miles Davis and his influence on the zombies? Well, I can tell you about his influence on me. And that was that when I was about 15 years old, I heard uh, a track called Milestones, which was on the album that came out before Kind of Blue. And I was completely knocked sideways by it. I just thought it was fantastic. And uh, I just listened to masses and masses of Miles Davis at that time. In fact, I still do. I mean, I still play him at home. And that is an eight-track. Your old manager, Mel Carter, he had an eight-track club. Mel Collins? Uh, Mel Collins, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, he managed me for a short time, but he managed, really, basically, he was managing Argent. He did actually manage me for a time. He did, didn't he? Uh, yeah. He club, did he? Well, he had an 8-track. Have you guys ever been on 8-track before? Yes, yes, I have. we have been on 8-track. Uh, Argent were on 8-track at one point. But have the zombies ever been on 8-track? Uh, I don't think they have, to my knowledge. I don't know. I don't play Zombies records, so I don't know. <laughs> One record I wanted to ask you about, Colin, was the Nut Rocker, Kim Fowley. What is the importance of the Nut Rocker? Well, for me, uh, Nut Rocker is a song. I don't know anything about this record. <laughs> Be Bumble. Be Bumble and the, the Stingers. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, because Kim Fowley wrote it. I didn't know that. Tchaikovsky wrote it. Uh, no, he puts the credit. Kim Fatley, right there. Oh, right. Well, well I guess he borrowed from Tchaikovsky. Someone had better yeah, tell him, yeah. yeah. But that was important for the zombies. Be Bumble, right? It was, because at our very first rehearsal, uh, Rod was going to be the lead singer, and I was the rhythm guitarist. We took a break in the middle of the morning, and Rod walked over to a broken-down piano in the corner, and he played... Nut Rocker by Bee Bumble and the Stingers. And I was amazed. It was, I thought it was fantastic. We were, as a band, we were very average, I thought. But Rod was a spectacular uh, keyboard player. And I said to him, Rod, you really should play keyboards in the band. And he didn't want to because it, he wanted it to be a rock and roll band and he wanted it to be all guitars. So he declined. But then later on in the morning, I was just singing a Ricky Nelson song and we can't remember what song it was. And he said, you know what? You can sing. You be the lead singer, and I'll be the keyboard player. And basically, that's how The Zombies was founded. So this record started The Zombies, kind of. Well, the Bee Bumble record did, yeah. It did. Tchaikovsky. He was the start of The Zombies. You also have a song called You're Moving On. Moving, oh, on. moving on. Yeah, yeah, Moving On, on the new album. On the new album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have a gift for you. An Elvis beer mug. Oh, wow. Check that out with the handle. Check out the handle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To put on the keyboard. What do you think about putting that on the keyboard as you play? I'll think about it. Because that is great having space on a keyboard, isn't it? 
It is. I think it looks stunning. And I, I think Rod, perhaps full Rod with foam over the top. Over I the think top, he should yeah. put that on the keyboard, yeah. Well, anybody from the band drink from the Elvis beer mug. That is incredible, isn't it? Well, I can ask tonight, yeah. What is the drinking habits of the zombies? What are the drinking habits? Would this be off stage or on stage? Would it have tea? Um, this would be... <laughs> well, actually... Um, after many, many years of drinking, and this is nothing to do with an alcohol problem, I can assure you, I decided that I wasn't going to have any alcohol in my system when I played anymore. So I don't drink anything before going on stage. After many years, I mean, I, I started when I was 15 years old, and I could never imagine doing a gig without having a drink. Was it because you were a keyboard player? Because it was so easy to have a drink, to put it down. It's because I always had a flat surface and I didn't know what to do with that flat surface. So well, you do now. I do now. <laughs> it's taken me all this time to actually find something that will fit on top of my keyboard. An Elvis beer canter mug. Yeah, Elvis, the man who had our records on his jukebox. Thank you, Patrick Stoddard. Thank you, Patrick Stoddard, who worked for the Watford Evening News or something like that. And he covered our very first... Uh, triumph at uh, the Watford Town Hall, which was the Hearts Beat competition, and he became a, a very good friend. And he went on to be a very important uh, reporter for national newspapers after that. But I, I remember him basically from 1964. Did he also tip you on a studio, like jo- John Jackson's studio? Oh, he might have done, because we did actually record in the Jackson studio before we went to Decca and recorded She's Not There. So we it, we had been in a studio once before, and Patrick Stoddard may well have told us about that studio, yeah. There is a Canadian connection to the zombies, too. You are Colin Blundstone, but there also is an A. Pardon? <laughs> Paul Arnold. Oh, Paul oh, Arnold. Yeah. A.B. Yeah, absolutely. In school, right? That's right. We sat in alphabetical order. And so Paul Arnold was in front of me, and he turned around one day, and he said, you've got a guitar, haven't you? And I said, I do have a guitar. And he said, would you like to be in a band? I'm forming a band with my friend, Rod Argent, who went to a completely different school. There's no way I could have known Rod if we hadn't have been sitting in alphabetical order. And Paul Arnold went on to be a doctor, and he's now in Edmonton in Canada, and he is a doctor. And your daughter is a doctor. My daughter's a doctor too, yes, absolutely. So thank you, Canada and doctors. Absolutely. I'm all for Canada, and I'm all for doctors, especially when I'm unwell. The zombie church, you guys practiced in a church hall? Um, yes, we did in Hatfield, yeah. Yes, we did. How come you know that? Well, you were the zombies. We have to know. My God, yeah. You know, we did. And actually, the, the great thing was, there was one schoolmaster at school that I really hated because he used to give me the slipper on my bare backside every week, um, this, this sort of gym slipper. And I got my own back on him by practising in this church hall, which adjoined his living room. So every Sunday afternoon, I completely ruined his piece for week upon week. So, you know, I was very pleased about that. But that was the Hatfield uh, Church Hall, yeah. The Rugby Club, VFRC. It's the old Verilenium's Rugby Club, yeah. And uh, that's the old boys club for St. Albans Grammar School. I, I went to St. Albans Grammar School. I played rugby for them. I, and I played rugby for that rugby club. And one Do you have any scars from rugby? I have many. Yes, I have broken nose, broken tooth, dislocated he had shoulder. A broken nose when we when we first met, and I thought, God, I hope it's not him. Yeah. 
When we first met, I was strapped right across the face here with two black eyes. I, I'd never met him before. And I walked up to him and said, I, I'm in the band. And they were all scared of me. I looked like a zombie right from the beginning. Anyway, yeah, I played rugby for the old Verilaniums. And one Saturday, they had a band in there. And they were friends of mine. And they weren't all that good. And I thought, you know what? We could get the zombies in here. And we really built it up. That was one of our first local followings in that rugby club and some other rugby clubs as well. And they used to have to put a big marquee on the back of the rugby club because there was so, it was so many people came to see us. The first time we played there, we played to about a dozen people. And then we went down so well that they booked us in a, a few weeks' time. And we played to maybe 30, 30, 40 people. Within a year, as Colin said, they had to build a marquee on the side of it because they couldn't get enough people hundreds, in the hall. There was hundreds of people there. It was a very exciting time for us. And that was really just before we recorded She's Not There. Did you guys also live in the Philippines for a month? Uh, uh, was it a month? Well, I mean... You couldn't get out, could no, we? We couldn't get out, no. I mean, we did a 10-day residency in the Araneta Coliseum, which at the time held about 30,000 people. It was It's huge, you know. We opened to 28,000, and it went on like that for 10 days. A residency, yeah. A residency, yeah. And Beachwood Park was written there? No, I think it was written where Chris White... Chris White wrote Beechwood Park, and Beechwood Park was a real park just up the road from where he lives. Was it written in the Philippines? You had a month to, you know... Well, you'd have to ask Chris, but I don't think it was, but, you, you, I mean, Chris might tell you a different story, yeah. You guys mentioned you were prisoners in the Philippines? We were, because the thing was, we found out we were being ripped off to such a degree that um, we were pay, being paid £80 a night between us for playing to 30,000 people per night. Um, and at the end of that 10 days, we, uh, he wanted to, us to stay longer because we could still fill the, the hall. And we said, OK, but you've got to pay us more money. And, and he got all his gangster friends, and they lifted you up by your lapels. At, at one point, yeah, they lifted me up by my elbows to... Because to, he had a militia, you know, with guns and... Trun- you were pretty big, too. I know, they just... Pick me up and walk me out of the room, yeah. In the Philippines, you recently played there. Who is the famous daughter that came to see you in the Philippines recently? I won't. All I remember is Mrs. Marcos, uh, Congresswoman Marcos, uh, came to see us, but I don't remember any... But daughter. nowadays, nowadays, you, you returned. Oh, really? Yeah, when we... Marcos came to see you. Yes. And she came backstage afterwards, yeah. How did her shoe collection look? Well, well, we did see her shoe, shoe selection. It's not easy to say. We did see the shoe selection in the palace, but we did... In the palace? I have to tell you a little story about that. In the previous time we went to the Philippines, which was a couple of years before, uh, she was persona non grata at that time, and somebody took us around the palace, and there was her shoe collection, and Jim's wife, Jean was with us and she said oh I'm going to try on her shoes and she tried on all, all um, Imelda Marcus's shoes uh oh this is not good news but the other thing was when she was in the audience the promoters were very pro her she's now a successful politician in her own right and they said we'd like you to introduce congresswoman uh, Marcos from the stage and just introduce her to the audience and it's very very dark her party are in the front row, so if you could just make a, a little announcement. So I did. So we'd really like to welcome Congressman Marcus, and I looked down to the front, and it was the backing singers from the, the band, band, from the support band, and they all stood up, and Mrs. Marcus was 
right up the back on the left-hand side. So I introduced the backing singers as Mrs. Marcus, which didn't go down particularly well, but I thought it was amusing. I would like to ask you zombies about this LP right here, Bunny Lake is Missing. Bunny Lake is Missing, Otto Preminger. You have a drummer named... Hugh Grundy. Hugh, was he wearing in this movie a beetle wig? I've no idea. No, he wasn't. There were some pictures taken with Otto Preminger, the director, with a Beatles wig. Okay. So it was it was Otto with the wig. But I mean, yeah, Otto said to us, "I'd like you to write three songs for the film, but I want them written and recorded in ten days." So it was a real pressure job. But we got it done, and we there are three songs in the film. Talent plus brains equals Otto Preminger equals the zombies. I think we were cursed with that. When we first went to Decca, they wanted to find an angle to sell the band. Remember, we were 18 years old. And they said, what have you been doing in your life up to now? And we said, well, we've only just left school. And then we went down a very precarious road where they developed a story that we were some kind of academic geeks. And it's, it's a very unhip thing to be. And, we and it's also completely inaccurate. I mean, you had Mick Jagger, who was at the London School of Economics, you know, which was a, a great university. You had Paul Jones, who was at Oxford, Paul from the Manfreds. You know, it's, it was just crazy. But it was just people that had no idea. And, and we didn't have a manager who had a grasp of how to mould our image. And we were stuck with those photos and that story for about three or four years it was just crazy it still comes up now in fact it's just come up today (laughs) ba-boom I was curious zombies what do you think about glasses and rock and roll um well if you're short-sighted and you're playing rock and roll you need glasses to get on the stage and uh two of our band members needed glasses to get on stage although I'm John Lennon other people needed to get on stage too. And, but I will say one thing, Paul Atkinson sadly is no longer with us, but when he's, he got very early contact lenses, he changed completely the way yeah, he looked, didn't he? After about, it was certainly in the first year, wasn't it? Or yeah, something yeah. about that. Yeah. So uh, towards the end of the band, there was only one guy with glasses, and there still is only one guy with glasses. Chris White is with us tonight. You mentioned zombies, the rugby injuries. How long, specifically, Colin, did you have a chipped tooth for? Well, I've still got it. I've got a crown over it. You know, I broke this front tooth, and my nose was nearly in my ear at one point, but it seemed to, you know, I had to have an operation. But performing, like, did anybody notice? Well, I broke it the uh, the day of a concert, so that day they did notice, because it it was broken very high, so... uh, Absolutely. You just have to get on with it, don't you, really? Uh, when we went to the Philippines, I had a fractured ankle. So I just had to limp around <laughs> as best I could, you know. Rod, what do you think about the Vox Continental Organ? I love it. Well, you can have it. <laughs> um, the, the thing is, I, I, only ha- I, I got the Vox Continental Organ because I couldn't afford anything else. And as soon as I could f- afford a Hammond, I got a Hammond. Do you have any tips for piano players? Do you have any tips? Practice. Practice. How should one practice, though? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it depends. Um, I, I think you've got to really have your heart in it. And, and the thing is that with, with me, I, I, I longed to play, to play the piano. And I actually used to listen to records and I used to work out, um, I used to work out what, um, what the chords were. Uh, on the records, and I spent. Out, um, I loved sports as well. I used to love to play football and everything, uh, uh, soccer, as you as you guys call it. Um, 
but I would still stay in every summer afternoon and sort of tinkle away on the piano and I thought I discovered the complete secret of Western Harmony when I discovered that three chords could could actually uh, harmonise with anything so I thought well that's it you know I don't need to learn anymore but I mean they were very early days but I think I think you've just really you've got to have the application and you've got to have the enthusiasm and you've got to want to do it if you don't then there's no point really but you've got to you've got to see it through but you know you've got to work hard but that can be a joy if you and you've got to be honest to yourself you've got to do it for the right reasons so many people these days that they just want to be a celebrity and if you'd asked anybody when we were young um what do you want to be they might have said i want to be in the best band in the world i want to be the best guitarist in the world they could say that and that was fine but no one said i want to be famous these days most people would just say i want to be famous and you know you've got to be more honest and true to yourself than that i think you guys also have the song new world york oh new york well we have got a new world as well um new york yeah that's the song that rod wrote about the first time we went to new york and we played at the brooklyn fox murray the k's christmas show at the brooklyn fox and it was a wonderful time curious about that the customs officials they wanted you guys to speak to their daughters oh yeah oh there was one yes there was one i i'd never seen a gun before so these customs people they had guns and i was very nervous and this guy took me away on my own and uh I wasn't quite sure what was going on and then there's no mobile phones obviously so he took me into a phone box and he said would you say hello to my daughter? I thought he was going to shoot me <laughs> up to that point. When we, when we were uh, coming through the customs for the first time, um, the guy started talking in what I thought was a foreign language, but it was his idea of an English accent. And, and, and then he invited us to Sunday lunch, to Christmas, Christmas Day lunch, which we went to, believe it or not. But Paul later married the head dancer? Yeah, and, and uh, her, her lead dancer, when she came over to... England she, she came to live in England and uh, she was quite a famous choreographer and I met my wife who was Molly Malloy's lead dancer so I've been now married for 40 well since 1972 so that's 45 years and I went out with her for five years before that and that was all because of Molly and also you guys got to kiss the Shangri-Las it was only me <laughs> I think it was I certainly didn't kiss them. no what no what actually happened was that we were, we were dragged into doing two things on the show. One was that Hugh had to ride a, a, a motorbike on oh, yeah, leader, leader of the pack. pack yeah. And the other thing was that on giving him a great big kiss, I had to go up and plant a smacker um, on uh, Mary's face. Not lips, unfortunately, but it was her face. Odyssey and Oracle by the... Zombies. By the zombies. On the song Changes, can you hear security guards? Well, I'm not sure. I'd like to think you can, but uh, we overran this, the session in Abbey Road, and they were very strict about time. It was just past one o'clock, and two guys came in in long brown coats, and they moved the grand piano that we were singing around while we were singing changes, which we thought was hilarious, and we just kept singing. So I'd like to think you can hear it. I've tried. I'm not sure that I can hear it, but it happened. Time of the season. Were you the first band to go, oh, because you go, oh, yeah, I mean, the thing was that we had a few more tracks uh, uh, in a multi-track sense on that album than we'd ever had before. So what we would do, we would be very thoroughly rehearsed and we'd go in, in a three-hour session, we would record our track. And then because we had one or two extra tracks, anyone that had any ideas, we'd just throw them on. And in time of the season, um, 
I, I got Hugh to play my song, and I got I, I'd written the bass and drum part, and I got Hugh just to play an offbeat. But I said to Hugh, I can hear this either side of the offbeat, and he said, Well, go and do it. So I just did it, and it it took what three minutes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Is that the first song that had uh, in it? Had you heard that before? Because that is amazing. Like, oh, uh, oh. Uh. Well, I don't. Rem- I can't think of any others, but I mean, I wouldn't lay claim to it. I don't know. I mean, I think the important thing is, at the time, Rod wasn't copying anything else. He just heard that in the arrangement, and so that's what he did. And working in Abbey Road at that time gave us the opportunity to add these spontaneous things because we had extra tracks for the first time. If we go way back to the Blue Tones, Rod, an acetate exists with a song you wrote on it? It literally was the first song I ever wrote in my life. I was 15 years old, and... um, my cousin, Jim Rodford, who plays bass with us now in the current band and was with the Kinks for 18 years on their biggest ever selling records. Jim was in a band called the Blue Tones and he was my first inspiration. I, I just really wanted to be in, in a band once I'd heard him play. Um, and I wrote this song. Why they took me seriously, I have absolutely no idea, but they did. And I gave them this song and it had a million chords at the beginning. It was very Beatles derived, but it's actually quite charming. I didn't think it existed anymore any record of it but i later found out not that long ago jim told me that olympic studios the very famous studios where the stones recorded and everything the blue tones had gone to olympic studios and recorded this song and it exists and i i now somewhere have a copy of it and i'm so pleased because it was the very first song i ever wrote and i don't think there are many people that could say the very first song they ever wrote was recorded in somewhere like abbey road or olympic you know but this one was and and i still think it sounds charming very derivative but quite charming when can people hear it well i know that um the guy from uh, bmg records have taken over our, uh, our new record and i know that that the guy um from bmg um on a podcast has actually put out or, or he's, he's going to be using it um, it's called the lonely one and he's using it in the podcast, so presume that it will be available at some point. The Watford Town Hall. Hall. You had a couple judges judging you. We did. I, I'm. I only remember one. One was a guy called, at the time was called Shane Fenton, and he had had some chart success in the UK. Later on, he became Alvin Stardust and had a lot more success. And he was one of the judges, and the judges judged that we were the winner, and that led directly or indirectly to a record contract with Decca Records. There also was Sandra Berry as a judge. Do you remember Sandra I Berry? Do remember her? Yeah. 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 And she did later stuff with the action, that mod band, the action. Do you remember them? I do, yeah. And I remember her, but I, I wasn't aware of anything that she'd done in the business. I just remember her from that night. And I was curious, Zombies, winding up here, what did you think about these particular kind of modish bands that you have played with? Do you know any of these British bands? First off, we have the Downliners Sect. Right, Downliner set. Yeah, yeah. I, me- I remember. I remember the Downliner set from many, many years ago. I, I can't remember much about them. Because the Downliner sect were one of the forty records that Al Cooper bought. Oh, when he came to England, when he bought Odyssey and Oracle. And then the rest is history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he bought the Downliner sect as well. Wow. Well, I do remember them being... They, they were quite well-known on the scene, they actually. Were. Yeah. And I think we bumped into them a few times on the road, you know, but I can't claim to know them well. And right underneath them, we have the pretty things. Oh, yeah. We just played with them 
last summer there was a big concert quite close to where they I live actually great they sounded really good yeah. Talk, yeah 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 also they recorded Roadrunner yes as we did and as did many others I think and right underneath it is John's Children featuring Mark Bolin did you ever play with any of those bands at all like the John's Children or the Action or the Downliner Sect you know the kind of mid 60s freak beat scene I played with Mark Bolin when I was with Argent and he was trying to make a name in New York and, and it didn't really happen in a, in a big way for him but um, I don't ever remember us playing with him do you no, I don't think the Zombies did no Zombies, right now, winding up here, here we have a little book for you guys, the Dollar Book of Songs, the Zombies. The Dollar Book of Songs, the The Zombies. Well, thank you very much. If we open up to this page right here, we have a little informational thing on the Zombies. Well, I'm, I'll take your word for it, but without my reading glasses, I haven't really got much of a clue. Well, it shows all the different members of the zombies, and we see Colin Blundstone, and if we go all the way down there, we see Charlie Bird. You love Charlie Bird. Danny Castle. I was obviously listening to them at the time. Wonderful guitarists, yeah. Now, what can you say about Charlie Bird? Not very much. Is I, it? I can say a couple of things. There was an album called Blues for Night People that was one of my favourite albums when I was very young. And the other thing is he did make a version of Time of the Season as well. And I have a gift for you to reacquaint yourself with Charlie Bird, a Charlie Bird LP. All right, fantastic. I must admit, I haven't listened to him in some time. But I mean, he is a fabulous player. And if you could open us up again, we okay. see another photo. You guys holding a trophy. What trophy are you holding there? It's a number one in cash box. And, just, and I ended up having that at home. And just recently... Yeah, I know, because it was given to all of us and no one knew where it went. I had it. But I gave it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in um, Cleveland. Actually, I leased it to them. To be absolutely truthful, but it's a, it's a. How much did you get? No, I just I didn't get anything. <laughs> okay. But um, uh, it's a trophy for being number one in Cashbox, which she's not there. What do you think about Hugh Grundy versus Robert Grundy? Uh, uh, fake zombies. Did I see uh, you guys in 1988? Not in 60s. Not the ZZ Top zombies. But did I see you in 88? Could I have seen you? No. You could not have seen us in 88. But um, Robert Grundy may have been the guy who was threatened with a gun. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. I, I thought I'd written quite a few letters to try and stop this band impersonating the zombies, and I thought maybe I'd had some kind of effect. And then I heard this wonderful story that a fan went into the dressing room and pointed a gun at the fake zombies and said, you are not the zombies. And then they didn't play anymore after that, and I don't blame them. Well, that's amazing. And you encountered again, too, on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. We encountered... Again. We oh, did. We did, actually. Dee Dee Sharp. Dee Sharp, who was down the front of the bus, I'm glad to say, because we were up at the back. She, I don't know who she pointed the gun at, but she definitely pointed a gun at someone, and I'm afraid she was left on the side of the road. They... Uh, she was kicked off the tour, wasn't she? Yeah, there's another fake zombies story, and that's that um, that, that recently uh, the two guys that became important members of ZZ Top um, were in a fake zombies band. So that we only found that out a couple of years ago, actually. And it gives you great credibility, doesn't it? Yeah. Thank you, ZZ. Well, absolutely. And when we finish, we, we, we intend... It's going to be a ZZ Top tribute. We are, actually, we, we might make more money, yeah. yeah. What song would you do, Legs, or...? Oh, I don't oh, know. All, all of them, very badly, but all of them. Can you give a 
shout out zombies to Fiona Bloom, the publicist that set up this interview. Fiona, thank you so much. This is one of the best interviews I've ever done in my life. Thank you so much, Fiona. Oh, that is amazing. Thank you. And you guys are the zombies. The zombies. Why should people care about the zombies? Why should people care? Because we're lovely people and we deserve all your gratitude. I think Rod put that rather well. Well, thank you very much, zombies. Keep on rocking in a free world and do do loot do do do. Listening still, hopefully, to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And you just heard right there the zombies with It's All Right With Me. And before that, an interview with the zombies. And one of the bands that I mentioned in the zombies interview was were the pretty things. Here are the pretty things with. Don't bring me down! I'm on my own Just wanna roam I tell you man Don't wanna hold I want around Be off the ground From town to town I say I think this life is grand Say I think it, man Don't bring me down, man Don't bring me down I met this shit The other day And then to me She says she stayed I got this bad Just like a cave And we have 
Chuck D, and the name of my group is Public Enemy. Chuck D, welcome to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Thank you. Right off the bat, Chuck, I have a gift for you. Okay, thank you. Here it is, right. I'm not good at accepting gifts. Here it is, right there. And this is for Chuck D, a little gift to welcome you to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Ah, this is something. Now, this is nice. Mm-hmm. Now, what attracted me to this poster was the Temptations, because I know you love the Temptations. Yes, I love Motown, and I, I got to have a piece of Motown every day. And this is the Motown Review um, in Columbus, Ohio. There's, well, there's a few Columbuses out there, but I'm thinking that this Columbus, Ohio. Um, you got the Four Tops, same old song, Since I Lost My Baby, Temptations. Uh, nowhere to run, so I'm thinking this is 1965. But also, Willie Tyler and and Lester. Right, Tyler and Lester, um, the 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 ventriloquist. Made me think of puppet shows. Puppet shows. Puppet shows. I don't know. Have puppets. you played with any puppet shows? Have any puppet shows played with Public Enemy? You know, like there's puppets on stage with Public Enemy. Ever had no, that? No, 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 no. And it made oh, me think. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Well, that's what I was thinking. Is this right here the best Public Enemy Chuck D doll? Is this the best doll? Because there's quite a few. They have quite a few. You know, people, you know, do voodoo on them all over the world. And I was thinking, okay, here's the Chuck D doll. Pretty cool. But it's nicer to have dolls that resemble other. Put it, on, put it on my shoulder. Could it straddle, have the doll straddle my shoulder for a second. Oh, okay, right. There I will. There, as, as Willie Tyler and Lester would have their act all there together, who you might have seen in the 70s, right? Right. So we have a little Chuck D on the shoulder, but I have another gift for you right here, something that you can actually keep right here. We have something in this towel. You can put that down if you want there to yeah, decide. I have to put that in the thing. And goodbye, Chuck, right? What do we have right here? A little gift for you, Chuck D. Was this flavor? You know, they got a bunch of flavors around. Oh, okay. Who's this? Clarence motherfucking Reed. Oh, yeah, Blowfly. Right, right. That's my man. And this is interesting because Blowfly's rap dirty, that influence, fight the power. How did that happen there? Um, well, I mean, 1980, we collected records. It was on the TK label, which was known for a lot of different records in 77, 78, 79, and 80. Um, Dance the Drummer's Beat was one of them, you know. Um, so Blowfly had one of the first rap records with Blowfly rap. And um, they had a sequence in there where he came up with the sequence about the KKK and Muhammad Ali. And so that stuck with me. And you flipped it with Elvis. Yes, Elvis and John Wayne. And the amazing thing is Blowfly said he actually wrote that tune in 1965, Rap Dirty. That's when he said he wrote it and recorded it, 1965. Well, you know, he's one of the, the great guitarists of R&B history, too, Clarence Reed. I thought he was piano. Nah, well, he probably plays that, too. I want to ask you, Chuck D., about this particular record right here, Malcolm X by Keith LeBlanc. Yep, and uh, Doug Winbush and... And who's a, one of the founding members of Living Color and um, the, the house band for the for the Sugar Hill record label we made this record and we played the heck out of it and highly influential to to how Public Enemy made records. It actually used sampling 
before sampling was even known as sampling. To sampled Malcolm X's voice over the funky beat of Keith LeBlanc. And if you open it up there, it's got an ad for a record pool. And I was curious, were you ever part of this record pool? If you turn on the back here, it says record pool. Do you know what that is? What is that all about? Well, Dance Music Report wasn't really a record pool. What they did, they had DJs that reported in uh, early 80s. is Tommy Silverman and, and um, Monica Lynch's um, creation. Um, they were around the whole New York City dance scene and rap was a component of it. So the rap records that they had were really rap records, but they also was a combination of electronic music. Planet Rock was Africa Bambada and Arthur Baker getting together. So, you know, Dance Music Report was actually their own um, uh, trade rag, you know, which talked about music. Uh, it was way ahead of its time. From this, you had the new music seminar. Very influential for the battles and stuff. And I want to ask you about this Malcolm X record, Chuck D, because you love the Malcolm X. Yeah, um, I heard about it. I've never had this, but, uh, you know, it's uh, um, Alan Douglas, who also produced The Last Poets, um, probably, f- you know, figured on how to, you know, record one of his lectures and, and put it out as an album. Matter of fact, I have one of my lectures I'm putting out as an album um, maybe next month. I did a lecture at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida, and found it to be kind of relevant and on point to to kind of emulate, you know, my heroes. Speaking of heroes, these guys, this guy, Herman Kelly, this is foundation, isn't it? Well, I talked about this earlier because this album, actually, although this was the original version on Electric Cat, um, Herman Kelly in Life, Dance to the Drummer's Beat, Percussionist, used on a lot of sessions, but also from the Electric Cat independent label. Um, another great pioneer who we just recently lost, uh, Henry Stone, just passed away um, from Florida. Uh, Who flies label boss? Flies label, label, you know, for a particular time. And then Henry Stone um, had the TK label, which also did the single and dance the drummer's beat. And um, they were very explosive um, as far as a label putting out 12 inches. I want to ask you a little bit about Spoonie G. I love that Spoonie G speaks about eight tracks. One of the first records that we picked up in rap records, myself and Hank Shockley, I heard this record walking down 125th Street in a cold December and it was an old busted speaker and an amplifier playing a turntable with a record out onto the streets. And myself and Hank was walking down the street and we heard this record being played from Paul Winley's office who also put out this, this record, Sound of New York, Spoon and Rap. Uh, Spoon E.G. was you know, one of the, the pioneers. This came out not too long after the whole sensational phase of Sugar Hill Gang and before Curtis Blow. So it was right there in the middle. And as a matter of fact, at the same time that we bought this record, Spoon and Rap, we also bought a record uh, by Willie Wood, who was uh, Woody Wood from Queens, who was actually taking his whole style off of Hollywood, DJ Hollywood. Chuck D, quote, I remember hip-hop. I remember hip-hop as being... I remember hip-hop, Davey DMX. Right, right. Yeah. I remember who worked with Spoonie G. Who worked with Spoonie G and also Davy DMX is the bass player in Public Enemy now. And a good, great friend. Uh, 
he's a Hall of Famer on both sides, uh, the Run DMC side and also Public Enemy side. And uh, there's no better human being, heart-wise and contribution-wise, than Davey DMX. Anything I could do for him, i do for him. Um, he's really one of the, the, the unspoken-for legends of this genre. And on one of the coolest record labels, Tough City. That's a whole other story. Yeah, but uh, I would tell you that, that Davey DMX, uh, this record, One for the Treble, is so instrumentally profound is that it, it created a lot of records after it. And Davey DMX also worked with the important gentleman called Lovebug. That's right, Lovebug Starsky, Positive Life. And um, you talk about DJ Hollywood and Lovebug Starsky was one of the main guys that seriously held a hip-hop event together for you talking about three, four, five hours. So that's why when rap records first came out, it wasn't the mir- miraculous fact that they were long is that they were compressed into a you know into a record from a three-hour event and this record begins with a sample of wolfman jack which is really influential to you did you listen to wolfman jack through bed springs no but uh yeah and that came from the fact that wolfman jack when he was at exit erb you know this transmission signal was set up in Mexico and so powerful that people used to be able to hear the sounds on bed springs on the other side of the border but uh, Wolfman Jack, remember he had the, you know, was host of the Midnight Special on television, on, on the NBC networks, did radio, did, uh, you know, mainstream hit radio. He, along with a lot of the black jocks, were influ- influential, um, not only to myself and other in, in hip hop in general, but just like they kept soul moving and very organic. Chuck D, what do you know about the White Boys? Yeah, the White Boys, I think they were from Florida. But, um, you know. Producer Todd Ray. Todd Ray, yeah, I remember when this came out. Thought it was interesting. They had, you know, they tried to actually do the Beastie Boy thing, but the Beastie Boy thing already was, like, very true to its core. A bunch of New Yorkers. And so they could understand it and get it. I don't know where these guys were from. But, in Carolina or something like I don't that. No, but but you know this is hardcore, is it not? Well, too far ahead of its time. <laughs> too far ahead of its time. It's great when you go town to town. You always rap different artists. You bring up Mishimi on stage sometimes. Yeah, this is. I can't tell people Mishimi Canadian. This is my girl. She's the queen of Canadian hip hop, and you know her and Maestro Fresh West. He's the king. Without them, no Drake. Did you meet them way back when? When did you first hear of Mishi Me and Maestro? I um, met Mishi Me in the 80s and the 90s and uh, and became a very good friend of hers in the 90s and, you know, really a very, very, really important person to me as a person. An incredible human being. Anything that, once again, I could do for her, I'd do for her. It's so awesome, Chuck. You cover Twisted Sister. You cover Twisted Sister. Like, that's amazing. They're from Long Island. That's that. That's it, period. Dee Snyder and I remember one time Dee Snyder and I were in the same amusement park with our kids. Money in hip-hop. Eddie Chiba was making 2000 a night in 75? I think he made 2000 on some nights, yeah. That's quite a lot back then, isn't it? Well, yeah. Well, definitely back then. Especially back then, you can... You can do five or six gigs in the same night. So I can imagine when Chiba was hot, he was doing more than one gig in, in two or three different places. 
You are a New York rapper, aren't you, Chuck D? From Long Island. But New York in general. Yeah, I'm born in New York City. Uh, That's Flushing, Queens. My parents are from Harlem. So when a record like this comes out, how exactly do you feel? We have this record, New York Rapper by Bobby Jimmy and the Critters. Well, you know, um, the the, the thing is with Bobby Jimmy is that uh, he's able to, you know, do a lot of good covers. And so McCola was actually a record label out of Mississippi. They also had pressing plants and distribution from Los Angeles, so they made their mark. And it's kind of a funny New York tune, isn't it? Like he had some funny songs in he. Well, you can you always could appreciate somebody trying to copy the New York City accent. Have you ever met King Tim the Third, who some people think is the original? Well, I, I would love to meet Kim. King Tim the Third because I we played his record and thought it was very influential. Have you ever seen him around? Like, does he get any props at all? Because he was the first, but some people don't think he's the first. I saw him on YouTube, and some people that don't think he's the first recorded rapper, they don't do their research enough. And lastly, winding up here, you did a song with Isaiah Thomas's son. Yeah, Zeke Thomas. Uh, he's a uh, good in the electric dance music scene, and um. We did a song called uh, Blackness with Jaseri X from Pittsburgh. And Chuck D, how much booty is too much booty and how much thug is too much thug? When you can't control it and you can't control your thuggery and you can't control your booty. Chuck D, lastly, can you give a shout out to DJ Z Trip and Brother Ali for helping to broker this interview? Helping to broker this interview, my guys, my brethren, Brother Ali and Z Trip and other people that helped you track me down. Peace and I'm out. Thanks so much for your to my quesadilla. Thanks so much for your time, Chuck D. You. Keep on rocking in the free world and, and also I gotta thank um Flatline, Bad Warnick, for the works on Rap Station. Please keep on rocking in the free world, Chuck D, and do do the loot do. Do do and thanks for the uh for the poster. Oh, no problem. Thank you, man. You can keep the doll, though. This is a throwdown, a showdown. Hell no, I can't slow down. It's going to go. A shake, it's like a take. I'm going to bake the mic before you break. Raise your hands, raise them higher. The roof's on fire. Watch all wires. Hip-hop messiah. Rhyme samurai. No one comes next. No one came prior. Maestro. M-A-E-S-T-R-O. You love to plagiarize. Love to borrow. Steal. Paste. Peel. Wheel to wheel. And put it on your reel to reel. I feel. There's only one Samson. Many Delilahs. So check me out, y'all. But from a mile away. Use a telescope or binocular. But don't jock or mock my binocular. This jam is amplified. So just glide. And let your backbone slide. You listen to every word I say, every verb you heard I play, snaps a vertebrae. You try to cover, a hover me, a roast, a fake, a flag, then I run a post, toast, I'm the most. D-E-F's how it goes, no X's or O's or tic-tac-toes, L-T-D-N-O's. This ain't a game, I'm on a mission. Call me a hip-hop tic-tac-tician. A rapper's like a slab of clay, the shapeless. Champagne, no shimmer, no glass, is tasteless. A universe without light is lightless. That's why I always take time to write this. I'm it in my hands before I start chiseling. Could be a rain or brainstorm or drizzling. Sun could be Shining, sun could be showering. Practice makes perfect. I'm powering, flowering. My lyrics are awesome and tune in, volume and blooming, I'm blossoming. Blowing away blockades and barricades. Make you black and blue from the blast to the blaze. It's a blood spore. But bills are bank. I make your vision go blurry while your brain goes blank into oblivion. Beats from box to box to base. Rocks from blocks and blocks. Let your backbone slide. Just let it slide, y'all. I don't give up.
If your backbone quiver, man oh man, watch your swiver, rhymes untwine your spine while you slither. It's contagious, an epidemic can. You try to lift your cool, but it fell again. Rap scholar, soul academician. But like I said before, I'm not American. It's who you are, not where you went. We all originate from the same descent. I make a lot of sense. And pence, gold, myrrh and frankincense. When I'm in France, they flow me francs. Frankly, a Swiss account is where I bank thanks. At home, I make bills of brown for my sound. In the States, green like the grass in the ground. When I'm in England, they pass me pounds now. I clock cash in every town, so I slide. But nowadays, I'm trapped. So many suckers are my sacroiliac. It's like a rap sack backpack. Give me some slack, Jack. Rap is like a jungle. We rhyme for rhyme. It's like a vine to vine. Swung line to line of mine. I'm colossal. Use a mosquito. I'ma play Tarzan. You play cheetah. Cheetah, biter. Love to forge. Better yet, I call you Curious George. Cause curiosity cold killed a cat. Can't hide, so glide to the side. Let your backbone slide. The key word is synchronism, yo. Check out my homeboy dance to the rhythm. Hey, this ain't forte. I'm coming double F, fortissimo, FS for funky fresh. My DJ is LTD, mellow flex. You listen to the poetry pitch I project. Vocabulary golden beats from my rolling. Stone cold lyrics with the microphone I'm holding. Words are ripped, egos are stripped. I make sucker crews kick, dick Van Dyke flips. I get busy, they're dizzy. They start to collide, they should have stepped off. I let it slide, but now they got brazen Dry like a raisin, I glaze like a vase I smack shit like days until they realize They shouldn't know riff, it's 89, y'all Not Beethoven's fifth or sixth, it's a throwdown I'm conducting it, because of high-rise I'm constructing it Twas once a thought, pen and paper Now it's a tower, a soul, a skyscraper Let's get it out of hand, I've created a monster My musical monologue makes you wanna Move with the maestro, you feel high So it's set, the blend, the crescendo is nice, yo I'm the guy, the rhythm is a ride So glide to the fresh side, and let your backbone slide. This is a throwdown. There you have it. The complete vocal take, unedited by Maestro Fresh West from Let Your Backbone Slide, 1989. And before that, a big fan of Maestro Fresh West and Mishimi Chuck D, an interview with Chuck D from Public Enemy. Right now, to end the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, and you're still listening to the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, going to play something by The White Boys, who was also mentioned in the Chuck D interview. This is from Hardcore, Is This Not, from 1987. And I like what Chuck D said. These guys were just too ahead of their time. They were ripping off the Beastie Boys way before it was cool to rip off the Beastie Boys. Maybe they're not ripping off the Beastie Boys. You can decide for yourself. The White Boys, Hardcore, Is This Not, from 1987. Yes, The White Boys on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. This is hardcore, is it time? 